Hi, I'm Stuart Legere, Associate Artistic Director of Zupa. Welcome to Carry the Spark, Reflections on the Movement, a limited podcast series highlighting fascinating conversations with leading climate activists on the state of the climate crisis, the need for cautious optimism, and reflections on 50 years of the Ecology Action Centre. For more information, visit zupa.works or ecologyaction.ca. Here we go. Uh, we were running the first non-smoking cafe bookstore in Halifax on Argyle Street. And and uh, this tall guy used to come in and get espresso from us periodically, you know, during, over, the, over the course of the day. And that was Mark Butler. And at that point, the Ecology Action Center staff was were upstairs above the subway on the corner of Bloors and, and Argyle Street. And, uh, you know, they were up there and they, they turned the lights out. So when you, I went up there to buy, that was the only place I could find energy-efficient curly light bulbs. I wanted to do that. And so I went up there and bought some of those and he had to go find them in the closet. So it was pretty small. Uh, that was the first time I actually sort of entered an EAC space. And then uh, subsequently, after, after somebody approached Ryan Watson in our community, in our Buddhist community, about did he want to sit in on, on an energy committee? And at that point, some people in, in the community were interested in environmental issues. And he said, I can't go. Does anybody else want to volunteer? So I said, I'll go. And so I went to that meeting at the fireside. And the energy issues committee was sitting around having some drinks and having their, their, week, their monthly meeting. And that's where I met Brendan Haley. And that's also where I realized I have no idea what these people are talking about because I had no idea what a feed-in tariff was. I didn't know what capacity was, you know. And so I thought, well, I'll just go. And so that's how I got involved. And I can't remember the exact year that that was happening, but it was right around the time that that everybody was moving into this building at Fernlane. So that's the, that's the year or marker point, you know. And I sort of I began to enjoy um, being in a, in a group, being inside a group of people who were passionate about something that I knew nothing about, and so I felt like I can be a I could be a tyro again, you know, because prior to that time I'd been involved with uh, meditation practice and Buddhist philosophy in that community for a number of years, and so this was sort of new. So that was very refreshing. Well, I mean, for the for a number of, for the first number of years, it was the it was the Energy Issues Committee. I mean, I was kind of, I was really interested in energy issues around peak oil and, and climate change and alternative energy and so forth, you know. So, so I got involved in, and, and when Brendan, Brendan Haley proved to be a, kind of a brilliant coordinator and, and the committee itself was very, it was, it was big and it was uh, full of uh, ordinary people. You know, just off the street, coming to these meetings every every month, and it was creative. People were really creative, and we 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 enjoyed doing demonstrations and protests and and strategizing. You know, so that that was one one side of it. Uh, and the other exciting thing about it was that because Brendan is, has such an interesting mind, we began to um, 
posit what eventually turned into to Efficiency Nova Scotia. And, you know, that campaign, that campaign was very interesting because it involved all of the major stakeholders. And so, and, you know, like the, the, the greenhouses in the valley, the, the people who produce chickens for a living, uh, even Nova Scotia Power, and there were meetings in the archives. There was one special meeting in the archives where the director of something like that in, I think, Massachusetts came up. Uh, unfortunately, he, he's dead now, but he came up and he basically, he and Brendan basically presented to all the stakeholders evidence that um, efficiency is basically another power plant. It's the same as creating another power plant. And if they didn't do that, they would have to build another one. And everybody kind of got on board. And so then it became, um, you know, it became a reality. And there was one kind of, I'll stop in a minute, but there was one kind of crux point where Brendan came back because he was the lead person meeting with people, politicians and ministers and so forth. And he came back, he came to one of our meetings and he said, okay, we have, we have to make a decision here. Uh, is this entity part of the government or is it, is it an independent agency? And so, you know, the, the committee members talked about it and we decided it definitely should not be a government agency because when you get a new government, they'll get rid of it. And so, you know, that, that's how Efficiency Nova, Nova Scotia came to be semi-independent of government influence. So those things were, all of those things were, um, were really exciting and that's, that's what happened. And the reason that I, I then got involved in the board was because we had something called board reps. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I said that I would be on the board as the energy board rep and supposedly come back to them and we'd have communication. So I, that's how I started getting involved with the board. The way that the, that the entity was structured was within, within the Societies Act. So it has to abide by all the rules of the Societies of Nova Scotia Society Act. But within that, um, they set up a dynamic between the committees and the middle management and the board of directors as required elements. And I think that the idea was that the impetus for action committees or for action on behalf of the EAC in terms of the environment rose from those committees. So if people were passionate enough to get it together, to have to get a committee going, and then to get a coordinator funded and so forth, then they began to talk about wilderness issues, you know, coastal issues, energy issues. And some of those initiatives would then go up for approval or action. Um, so that was kind of very exciting. And, you know, the, the, the theoretical way that it was working was that the, each committee had a representative on the board. And so that rep would sit on those board meetings and then come back to the committee and there would be a line of communication. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was the kind of skeleton structure. And, you know, I think that it's safe to say that uh, I think a current member of the board, Grant McDonald, said at one point, the Ecology Action Center is one of the most difficult things to govern because of its structure. You know, some people feel it's ungovernable because there's no top-down. There's no particularly completely top-down, and there's no real completely up from the roots, right? So there's this kind of tension that happens. And in the middle of it, are the are the is the management who actually accomplish things, who actually do the day to day things, who are communicating with the committee. So that particular growing process um, 
you know, once something's born, it grows. You know, it continues to, to evolve and grow. Um, my last period of time in the, in, the, in the board of directors was painful growing. And, uh, but I think that it's come through the other end now. I think. I got the impression that it's back on an even keel. So it's a little bit like a ship in that way. You know, it's, it's effective... It's effective for an act. Well, first of all, I think activist organizations, well, activists, you could almost say by definition, treasure their autonomy of action, right? And so anytime you get a number of activists in a collective, uh, you're going to have a dynamic of a lot of discussion and tension and politics happening, right? That can be irritating. That can also be exciting. If you put that uh, that energy, and a lot of that energy, I think, is it's kind of safe to say is youthful energy. So a lot of a lot of the passion that really comes into these committees uh, is coming from people who are young and involved and really feel like they need to make a change. And then of course there are coordinators and other people who have been around who maintain that kind of passion energy. To have to have that kind of desire for autonomy within a structure that requires working with um, a hierarchy is is what creates the tension, right? Because the board of directors, the board of directors is responsible for making sure that the Ecology Action Center continues financially, legally, right? Also that, you know, in conjunction with the middle management that the Ecology Action Center and the statements from the committees are in line with their bylaws. And their and their uh, mission statement, our mission statement. So, so it's very complicated, and it requires a lot of meeting and talking. And you know that's why it can be. That's why it's it's kind of exciting. And I think that that's why it has it has a quality of being able to accomplish action. You know, because at the end of the day, really, what's really great about the Ecology Action Center is that people are able to accomplish action and accomplish. And to move the move the you know move the game forward in terms of the environment. There was a famous there was a famous Zen teacher named Dogen Dogen Zenji, and he said he said basically time goes from future to past. And. So if you, you know, if one wants to see the effectiveness or how the Ecology Action Center actually was effective, you just have to look back at what happened. And that's one. And then the second thing is you look back at the continuity of what happened. So it's not as though the, it's not as though the Ecology Action Center or, you know, an agency for change can kind of walk in and sit down and say, okay, now everybody's going to change. Or if you don't, you don't want to change, well, I'm going to get you to change. It's a two-way street. Um, so, you know, it, like, I think that it originally started out 19 and 50 years ago, it started out collecting newspapers, right? And so that initial, that initiative was, why are we throwing these, these newspapers into the landfill? Why don't we just collect them, bind them up, and, you know, do something about that? Let's create an organization, right? There were a few people who resonated with that, right? Enough to keep it going. Enough to go collect newspapers and go around and get them and do something with them. And so I think the story of the EAC is that it's always going along. And as the, the awareness of the rest of society or the world 
begins to expand, then there's more response to the Ecology Action Center, right? So a big shift, a big shift took place. Well, a big shift took place when when Fern Lane was became the home of the EAC because it's a it's kind of a you know it was it was a statement. It's always a statement to have this is where we land, right? And so we landed and then began to work and continue to work with the government and so forth. But when I left the board for the first time. I think they were, everybody was excited because there were 800 members of the Ecology Action Center. And my wife said there should be a million members of the Ecology Action Center in Nova Scotia. Everybody should be a member. Why aren't they, right? Um, well, they aren't because, you know, they aren't, right? So uh, now I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's grown exponentially and, and it had, it's had a number of successes and it still does. Um, but I'm not so sure I, you could sort of say this is how you do it. It's a, it's a mutual development. So James Lovelock in the 90s was a famous environmentalist, British environmentalist, or is a famous British environmentalist who coined the term Gaia, which, uh, you know, his belief is that the planet Earth is a, is, is, is a, a sort of a living organism in, in the sense of maybe not living with a soul or you know, but it has kind of interchange with things so that it has a kind of a developmental quality. And so he's talking about Gaia. And at a certain point, he was, he was looking at what was happening with climate change. And he said, basically, there are going to be climate refugees who are going to come into Europe and they're going to, they're going, not going to be able to live where they live anymore, where they have been living. And he said, and they're going to be coming into England and then he said, the key point for me was, he said, and we should welcome them. A few years ago, a number of years ago, the Dalai Lama said, compassion is the radicalism of our time. And so, you know, to have that kind of com quality of compassion for other people, um, for people you don't know, for people who are suffering, uh, is, is a radical thing now. Uh, you could almost say that the... That in terms of materialism and a materialistic outlook, um, which is basically, you know, what's in it for me, has been more and more, you know, more and more pervasive in, in the world. Um, and interestingly, the, the more that the climate crisis begins to impact more and more of us human beings, the more the feeling of compassion might come, might come back to the fore. And when that happens, then people are going to be, you know, we are more willing to give up our thing in order to think about the other person's thing. And I, that's the only way that, uh, that you know, that there's, so, there's too many moving parts to this puzzle, and there are 8 billion moving parts. And so, you know, it's hard to say this is how you do it, but that's the kind of, I think those are the broad brushstrokes for me, getting really real and really fast. And, you know, like I was talking to, you know, David Patrickan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he lives across the street from us. We were talking last night, and he said, you know, I was in a meeting with you know, a bunch of people our age. And then there was this 21-year-old girl who said, woman there, who said, like, what, what, what am I supposed to do, right, about this situation, you know? And that's a valid, that's a valid question in a way. On the other hand... People have been saying that from the time of Genghis Khan, 
you know, they were probably saying that 10,000 years ago when there was three kilometers of ice above this where we're sitting right now. I mean, so, you know, that's, that seems to be part of the human condition to say, oh, what, what am I going to do or what are we going to do? And it's not as though I'm a victim here and you're responsible. You know, it's, it's, it's great, great, great grandmother's coal fired stove and then her CO2 is still up in the atmosphere. You know, can't go and find her and blame her. <laughs> you know, in terms of a uh, matter of time, 1985 uh, or 1997 or today is, in terms of geologic time, is nothing. It's just a breath, it's less than a second, nanosecond. And so we've, we've created this misanthropocentric age. <laughs> just because we are human beings who don't respond very well to long-term threat. So unless human beings have some kind of tremendous biological revolution here, we're not going to be able to respond to long-term threat. So the question always within that relative reference point of this nanosecond of geologic time, since 1850, when whoever it was, um, who was it that discovered the steam engine so that they could pump water out of the coal mine, right? That was the first. That was the beginning. So that, that little blip in time um, is what we have to work with. And there's nothing you can do about the, the greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere right now, really. There's really nothing you can do about them. I, I don't care what people say about carbon capture. We've, looked, we've explored all of it, right? Planting millions of trees. It's up there, and it's going to take a certain amount of time before it, it changes, right? But rather than, getting, uh, rather than getting depressed about that, you could sort of say, well, this is the situation, and what, what am I going to do about it, right? So there was a member of the band who said, think globally and act locally. And I think that that's, that's exactly what the Ecology Action Center is doing, and I think that more and more people are actually on board with that. Frankly, you know, it's probably, forgive me for saying this, but it's probably hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't, you know, I don't think that um, the way to approach this quality of like hopeless in the sense of let's be real here. Let's be real, you know. Yeah. So that hopeless, not like, oh, hopeless. It's, it's like let's not have fake hope, you know. But, so therefore, if you don't have false hope or false fear, then you can actually you might be able to see clearly how to proceed, um, which is the only real way that changes, this sort of change is going to happen. Lots of times when, when we're confronted with stuff that's really intense, we go to nihilism or eternalism, you know? Nothing matters, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm going to go eat some worms. Or eternalism is like, They'll take care of it somehow, science, technology. Uh, you know, if you're a monotheist, you believe that an external deity is going to do that, right? But I think that actually, from my point of view, it's like neither one of those. It's, it's the middle way, right? <laughs> I think it really does, for me, it goes back to the compassion is the radicalism of our time statement. Because it's like, you know, when, we, when you look at the Hoover Dam, for example, in the West, and it's 30%, 30% of it's gone. Uh, or the fact that 
they're, they're having a mega drought there they haven't seen the likes of for 1,200 years. And uh, the fires and all the rest of it, everything, every little example, what do you do with that, right? And in a sense, really, what can you do? You know, if you can, you can as my, my daughter Alexis says, you, you witness it and, and you lean toward it. You know, you, you, you sort of, you know, as, as, as Lovelock said, we should welcome them in. Welcome them in. Um, so, you, you know, I can't go, I can't go help on the fire line. I can't rectify the situation in the West, West Coast, where I grew up. Um, but I can really feel for those people and, and you know, see in, and hope or, or aspire that, that kind of common sense will begin to prevail. Um, so that people can sort of set aside their this or that point of view and begin to feel like, you know, I don't have to resist this. I'm going to be, um, we're, we're part of this. It's affecting us, right? Often I think that about this, you know, we know that all of us know that we're going to die, but we don't particularly walk around terrified of being alive, right? So that's, in a sense, that's kind of a long-term threat. And when you find out that you're going to die and you have a certain period of time, that becomes a short-term threat. And one's reaction is different to that, right? Um, so when climate change becomes so intense for more and more people, um, because we're not going to be able to re-hardwire 8 billion people um, to, uh, to sort of think a little bit further ahead and take less drastic results as as this begins to impact more and more people you know it's going to become more and more short term in in the thinking of human beings and you know in a sense that's the only thing that really influences politicians whether they're going to get elected or not whether they're going to get elected so if they really begin to see that people really don't like what's going on in terms of climate change and want this kind of you know this kind of actual you know, these, these initiatives to come in and take place, um, then that become, that short-term threat will maybe have um, good consequences. You know, and the jury, of course, is out as to whether that's possible. So it's whether, it's whether we, as, we as a species can, can see the threat, or when, let me put it this way, when we begin to actually see the threat so that it tips, right, is there enough time left to, to do something about it? A good book to read is um, Under a White Sky by Elizabeth Colbert, <laughs> who is an environmental writer for The New Yorker. You may know her, but, um, you know, people say she's a doom and gloomer, but, she's, but basically this is kind of an interesting book because she's writing about the things that human beings did to fix a problem that then became a bigger problem, like introducing Asian carp in the Mississippi River to eat algae. And now they're trying to get into the Great Lakes, right? Or cane toads in Australia, right? So, you know, it sort of gives you an interesting... She, she herself wrote this during the pandemic year. And, I mean, she's, she's basically, she's trying to say, like, what is it about human beings? Like, what is it? You know? <laughs>